Well, good morning. Wow, what a great weekend. It's so much going on this weekend. We've got uh, 100 people down in Mexico or you know, building houses this weekend and reaching out to the poor and sharing the message of Jesus. And so that's great. Uh, uh, NFL draft this weekend. Yeah. Big time for that. Yeah, so uh, Lakers won yesterday, right, playoffs. So, uh, so just a lot of really important things in God's kingdom moving forward. And uh, just so excited about that. But uh, I just wanted to follow up, too, in that, that this whole children's ministry. We are so excited about this, this move. You know, one of our, our uh, top priorities here is children's ministry. We want to put as much energy and effort into our weekend services for children as we do for adults. And uh, I just want to kind of jump in with my two cents. If you sense God moving in your heart in any way towards any of those uh, helping out there with children, just really encourage you uh, to, to do that. Uh, we're just excited about being able to do worship every week uh, with, with uh, all of our age kids. In fact, one of the things we need, if you have a real heart for, uh, for children's ministry, uh, one of the things we need to do is we need to put about, invest about $25,000 into two rooms that have permanent sound systems in there so they can just do their worship you know, every week because uh, that's one of kind of the, the obstacles. And so if you just have a heart for that and you would like to give to that over and above your normal giving, uh, just, you know, if you write a check and just write down there that what, the memo, what it's for, we'll, we'll go to that too. But I'm just so excited uh, about what's, what's happening there uh, with our children's ministry right now. Um, so anyway, um, it's good to be back. Uh, you, probably wanna, you probably wonder who the guy, guest speaker was today, right? <laughs> Uh, it's good to be back, and I wanted to give you a quick update on my voice. I want to thank you for, for praying for it. You know, last week I had these three procedures so trying to figure out. I've had this uh, kind of rawness, uh, 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 hoarseness, soreness, cough in my voice for about a year. It damaged it over a year ago, and they still can't figure it out. And so they did these three scopes last week. What they didn't tell me is they were going to take biopsies <laughs> when they were down there. And so when I came out, just horrible pain and uh, under the influence for days, and uh, it's a good thing I wasn't teaching last week. It would have been memorable, I promise you. Uh, and so uh, anyway, but uh, the, the good news is structurally everything looks great in my throat. Vocal cords look great. Uh, everything looks They can't really figure out what's going on. But they did find this one weird area they couldn't see until they actually went down there that's kind of raw. And they can't, they'd have no explanation why. So we're sending me some more tests, even an infectious disease specialist and so on. And so we're continuing on that. But the good news is they said, you know, it might hurt. You might cough. Well, you might be raw, but it's not hurting you to talk. So it's like, well, good. That's the most important thing. And so I uh, just appreciate your ongoing prayers for that. So, so with that, uh, see, man, it's getting warm out there, right? It's like a, this is a preview. I was telling Lynn yesterday, we're coming back from Costco. It's like 86 degrees. Like, it's so hot. And they're like, can you imagine in two months we're going to be saying, what a beautiful day this is. You know, it's only, only 86. That's just great. So uh, anyway, I see a lot of you breaking out your shorts, getting the summer early. So just welcome to the summer, those of you who are doing that. And uh, uh, anyway, uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, my name is Pastor Mike. And uh, uh, inside your weekend program is a, a white message note sheet. So if you're, you're new here at Rocky Peak, uh, we're, gonna be, we're in the midst of a study in the book uh, of Romans. You're going to take that white sheet out, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll get started. You are awake this morning, right? Yeah. Okay, just checking. Okay, just checking. Okay, good, good. No, I know you, I knew that. I know, but, but it was before the prayer I was concerned. All right. Um, <laughs> okay, let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for uh, what you're doing here at the church, what you're doing in our lives, and how you're calling us week by week to be part of this movement that you're creating here, a movement of, of passionate Christ followers. And God, we, we just uh, 
today we realize today is the next step in that journey. So we love you, God, we love one another. We're excited to be here together. And we just want you to teach us now. Take us by the hand and lead us through your word. And just give us those aha moments that are so critical to our walk with you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, so his name was Danny Croce. He, had, uh, he grew up in the state of Massachusetts. He was uh, an iron worker, worked on the tall high rises by trade. Um, he was also a professional boxer, fairly young guy. And... Uh, and so on that particular day, uh, it was raining cats and dogs. It was just pouring rain. And he and his buddy were up on the eighth floor of this high rise doing the iron work and couldn't work any longer. So they decided to, to knock off work. And they stopped at one of their favorite bars on the way home. And uh, they stayed way too long and had way too much to drink. And so when it came time to leave, it was late. And they, they went out. And Danny was hoping his, his friend Sully could drive. But Sully was more wasted than he was. And so Danny pulled out his car keys, jumped into their Nova in this pouring rain, and they headed off. And he doesn't remember a lot of what happened that night. He, he remembers driving down the road. He remembers it's hard to see because of the rain. He remembers the, the oncoming bus with the high beams that were in his eyes just all of a sudden blinding him. And he, he remembers that moment when the bus was, was suddenly kind of coming over into his lane. And beyond that, it becomes sort of a blur. Uh, he does remember swerving to the right. He remembers uh, the, the car going airborne somehow, hitting something. He remembers that feel of the, the tires spinning in midair off, off the ground. He, he remembers that feeling of coming down and, and crashing into something, the screech of metal, the, all of a sudden the windshield going black and couldn't see and, and then skidding to a stop. When the car came to a stop, he, he stumbles out and he walks back towards a group of bystanders he can see back by the side of the road. And there's a police barrier there that's been broken through. And, and there's a man down. There's like a, an officer down. And the closer he gets, he, he realizes it's a buddy of his. It's a buddy named Johnny Gilbert. Johnny was a cop. He, he would hang out with the bar. They'd, they'd shoot pool together. Johnny would always tease him about keeping in shape so he could be good for the ring and and Johnny's like there, just he's wasted on the ground. And so he comes up and and Danny asks the crowd, so so who knocked him down? I'll never remember that, never forget that moment in time. When all he says, he looked him in the eye and said, You did. He was more under the influence than he realized, and he had crashed through that police barrier. He'd run over his friend, and sure enough, two days later. Johnny Gilbert died. And so it is tonight that Danny is laying on his, on his bed. It's in the Plymouth County Correctional Center. He's now a convicted felon, vehicular manslaughter. He's looking up at the ceiling. It's his first night there. He can't go to sleep. In fact, the fact is he won't sleep for several nights that first week. All he can hear in the distance is the, the low mutters of the fellow prisoners down the hall in their cells, and the creaking of the ancient water pipes in this old prison. Today we're continuing the series that we've been in now for the last couple months. It's, it's called The Way. It's a study of the life and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest uh, Christian thinkers, leaders, Christ followers of all time. And what we're doing in this series is we're coming alongside of him week by week and letting him mentor us. And what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a part of this ancient movement that Jesus started that in the early church was called the way? 
And our strategy is each week we, we're going to open up with one of the longest and most famous letters from the Apostle Paul, his, his letter to the Church of Rome. And we're going to start our, our study there, but then we're always going to be asking the question, as we kind of launch out from Romans and some of his other writings, uh, what else can we learn from his other writings about his life and teaching of uh, this great leader? And uh, so today we come to chapter 2, the second half of chapter 2. And if you've been here uh, through this series, you know that this first four chapters of Romans is a mini-series that we're calling Fallen and Forgiven. And the reason we're calling that is it's the story of the human race and how we fell away from God and what God has done to bring us back and to forgive us. And so in this opening section, uh, Paul is bringing his indictment against the human race. And it's kind of focusing on three different kinds of people, uh, three different kinds of, uh, of, of types of rebellion and how our fallenness works out. So group number one, in fact, we're going to call you today group number one over here, all right? Group number one in chapter one is kind of the wild kids of the race. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're like, woo! Yeah, you're the uh, blatantly disobedient people. You're, you're the people that, that, uh, that you, kind of, you know what's right, you know what's wrong, you just want to do your own thing. And so that's your, you're the wild kids, all right? All right, amen, amen, that's right, okay. Okay, you right here, you're the good kids of the race. You're in the center section, you're the good kids, you're the moral high roaders, you know, you've, you're, you know, for whatever reason, you've taken a moral high road in life, but as we saw last time we were together in the first half of chapter two, you're equally as fallen because you're the big pretenders in life. You've got the spiritual pride thing going on, right? Okay, and so now today we're talking, Paul's bringing part three of his indictment, and that's to my beloved people over here. And, and you are the, one of the hardest crowds to convince that you're really fallen because you are his own countrymen, the Jewish people. You've been raised from the time you were little kids to understand you are the chosen race. You are special. Uh, after all, God gave you his word. Uh, so you've been raised with his word. You know the truth about life and how to live. And beyond that, well, you're the forefather of the race. Your forefather, Abraham, when he first came to God and later on in his life, God gave him the special sign of their relationship, the sign of circumcision. So you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're the special because you understand that God is going to judge all these people over here. These are the sinners. From the Jewish perspective in the first century, everyone over here, you are the sinners in the world. There's a big line that goes down that aisle from you and everyone else. And you understand, yes, those people need to be judged. Yes, these people need to be judged. But we don't need to be judged. We are the, we're the special kids. So we got, the, we got the, the wild kids. We got the good kids. You are the special kids. You are the teacher's pet of the universe, right? Bobby Funk, yes, that's absolutely you. Teacher's pet. Okay. So and what Paul is going to say today is just time out. It's no question that as a race, you've had some incredible privileges. God's given you his word to teach you how to live. God's given you a special sign and commitment of, of, of the special ring of, of circumcision. You know, that you, you, this is your, your, your sign. And so, yes, you've had some great privileges, but what have you done with it? Uh, you've really not lived up to the word, and you've really not pursued a relationship with God. You've kind of rested on the religious ritual. And God's looking for something far, far more than that. So you two are equally fallen. And so it doesn't really matter whether you're a wild child, whether you're a good kid, or whether you're one of the special kids. 
you're all equally fallen. And so today he brings part three of his indictment in the second half of chapter two, and then uh, leads up to next, uh, chapter three, where uh, next week that he will bring his closing arguments of this, this court case and show how we're all stand before our God guilty and the sentence is death, all right? So um, let's open our Bibles and let's turn to chapter two, verse 17, as we go through the second half of the chapter. Now, as we jump in, uh, if you were here uh, last time in this series, which is about three years ago, uh, <clears throat> when I used to be your pastor, um, you remember that Paul in chapter 2, he starts using what we call this diatribe uh, methodology. It was a popular way of teaching in the day. Basically, you're writing your letter or your document. You pick out someone in the imaginary crowd out here. Um, and you begin to have a dialogue directly to them. You speak to them directly, and you, you pretty much you answer their objections to your argument. And as I interact with you, on, on opinion, like, and I call you out, and I interact with your objections and your questions, the rest of us get to listen in to learn more about your teaching and what you're really saying. And so he's going to continue that method here, and it starts in verse 17, Romans 2.17. He says, Now you who call yourself a Jew... So see, he's addressing now, we've moved from, from this group to this group to this group. Now you who call yourself a Jew, um, if you rely on the law and you brag about your relationship with God. Now this was a very typical attitude that Paul would run into as he'd go around teaching people about Christ. That he found that often the Jews of his day, not all, but often that they were very proud of their relationship with God. They'd brag about it. They were different from the rest of the world. And the reason they were they're proud of that it was because these two things. We've been given the law of God, and we've been given the right of circumcision. These are the two special signs that prove that we are the special children. And so he says, you, uh, you brag about your relationship with God, you rely on the law. <laughs> if you know his will, and you approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, and you have the word of God. You know how to live, and you're very proud of that. Uh, verse 19, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, you're a light for those in the dark. You're the enlightened people of the race. Uh, you're an instructor of the foolish. You're a teacher of infants. Hey, the rest of the world is like spiritual babes. We the Jews, we've got the truth. We're the teachers of the race. He says, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And of course, it's true, right? God had given them his word. This should have been their role for the human race, but they didn't, they didn't fulfill that role because of their fallenness, like all of our fallenness. He says, okay, so here's the problem. He says, that's great. You see yourself as special, but here's the problem. And it comes in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Now, this is the problem. We saw it last time with the moral high-roaders. It's one thing to have a higher standard in life. It's another thing to live up to the standard. And there's one thing for, for God to give the Jewish nation his word and say, this is how to live. Love, love me with all of your heart. Love one another as yourself. It's one thing to be given the truth about life. It's another thing to live up to the truth. And that's where, of course, the Jews, like all of us, have fallen short. And so he says, he gives some examples. Uh, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say, and he starts running through some of these Ten Commandments. You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
you who abhor idols. So I'm these rest of these pagan Gentiles over here. They're worshiping idols. They're so fallen. They're so bad. He says, but how about you? Do you uh, rob temples? Now, to be honest, we don't know if Paul is visualizing here literal like these literal sins that were committed, whether the Jews that, that he knew in his day were actually living just sort of a double-faced, hip, hypocritical life. Uh, like, have you ever known someone that uh, claims to be a Christian, maybe that you're a workplace, or they claim to be a Christian, and you're just like, oh, please don't say that. <laughs> because they're living a double life. They're saying, like, they're a follower of Jesus, and they're going, sleeping around here. They're partying over there. They're the first to tell gossip over here. They're lying here. They've got a reputation. They're not living the life, but they're claiming it, right? And so Paul may be saying that sort of thing, that, that in his day, this was very rampant, that people that were most proud about, we have a special relationship with God, they're actually literally stealing. They're literally committing adultery they're in a variety of sins like this. Or he could be talking more subtly about kind of sin, what we called last time sins of the heart. Like remember when Jesus taught and Jesus said, uh, he says, it's not, just, uh, wanting to, it's not just killing your neighbor that gets you in trouble with God. It's having anger in your heart. Remember that? Remember when Jesus said, um, hey, it's not just committing adultery. It's looking at a woman and wishing you could. Remember, it's the heart issue. And so Paul could be referring to that here, that, hey, you're so big, oh, we don't steal. But the fact is, man, you're coveting everyone else's stuff. You wish you could steal it. Or, you know, you're not committing adultery, but you're looking, you kind of wish you could. And so we're not sure exactly, exactly what he's referring to. But here's his point that's real clear. His point is that the Jews had the law, but they weren't living up to the law. And so he goes on in verse 23, and he says, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So in other words, uh, if you've ever known that kind of Christian person who claimed to be a Christian that at your workplace living that double life, what happens? People say, like, who would want to be a Christian, right? And it's like, man, it's like, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Right? Have you ever heard that? <laughs> okay, so... Uh, that's what Paul is saying here with the Jews. He says the same thing was going on, is that you claim to know God, you're so proud of your relationship with God, you brag about it, but you live this double life, and so God's name is being blasphemed. Everyone's going like, oh, those Jews, like, I'm sure they've got the real God, you know, that kind of thing. All right, so, uh, so that's the first, first part of the chapter. Remember, he says, okay, you think you have a special relationship with God. Why? Because you have the word of God. Hey, but the fact is, you haven't lived up, and you're in big trouble. The second thing they were really proud of is this ancient rite of circumcision. Now, back in Genesis 17, and we're not going to look there now. We'll look at this more in a few weeks when we get into chapter 4. But back in Genesis chapter 17, God had come to Abraham as the father of the race and talked to him about the special relationship they had and gave him a sign of the relationship, the sign of circumcision that was to be passed on to all their male descendants. And, and, and to, the, to the Jew, this was a dividing line that separated them from all the rest of the world. In fact, they would even talk about people as the circumcised and uncircumcised. There's only two kinds of people in life. And so they were very proud of this. We are special with God because we've been given the sign of circumcision. That's why we're so special. Now, uh, Paul's going to pick up now and focus on that issue. So he says, now, circumcision is of value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Okay, here's what he's saying. Let's say you go to a wedding ceremony 
And one of the things that do, happens in a wedding ceremony is you exchange rings, right? And so, so once you're like, the ring on my finger tells everyone I'm married. I'm married. I have an exclusive relationship with my wife, Lynn, right? And so it's, it's a very meaningful sign, isn't it? It's a very significant sign. What if I'm having an affair? Is this still a, me- a meaningful sign? No, now it becomes a sham, doesn't it? Now it's almost better not to have the ring on your figure because I'm going around, oh, I'm married, but I'm, I'm cheating on my wife, you see? And this is what Paul says. He says, hey, the law, the circumcision has value as a sign of your relationship if you have the relationship. If you're violating the relationship, circumcision is of no value. It's like you weren't, does that make sense? Okay, so then he goes on, and he says, in fact, if those who are not circumcised, which would be all the rest of the people in the world, Gentiles, if those who are not circumcised, they actually keep the law's requirements, they're pursuing God in their life, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Like God's going to look at them, their heart, you know, not just their bodies. Verse 27, the one who is not uh, circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who even though you have the written law, the written code, right, that's the first thing they're proud of, and you have circumcision, that's the second thing they're proud of, you are a lawbreaker. So it's very interesting. At the beginning of the chapter, you've got the Jew looking down on the rest of the world because, hey, we're special, we've got the law, we've got circumcision, we're condemning the rest of the world, you sinners out there. And at the end of this passage, now you've got the, the, the Gentiles, non-Jews, who are pursuing God, actually condemning the Jews because though they have these advantages, they have not pursued a real relationship with God. In verse 28, then he makes a statement that would be so radical for his day and so key to understanding the teaching of the Apostle Paul that a man is not a Jew if he is uh, only one outwardly, uh, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. There's something more to a, a true relationship with God than just the outward signs. Verse 29, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the what? The heart by by the what? By the spirit. He says, if you want to have a true relationship with God, something has to happen to you. It's a supernatural experience where God comes in and changes you from the inside out. He circumcises your heart. That's what leads to a real relationship. It's not just about the ritual. It's about the heart, and it's about a supernatural encounter walk with God. And he says it's not by the, just the written code, the Old Testament law. Now, such a man's praise is not from men. Uh, it's interesting that the, the word Jew comes from Judah, means you know, praiseworthy or, or praise. He says to be a true uh, Jew, to be truly praised, um, is, is more than being praised by men around you. Like, hey, you're one of us. It's being praised by God, you know, who you're really seeking after. Okay? So that's the passage. Now, Here's what I want to do. Because um, here's what Paul's done. So where we finish this third part of his indictment. Chapter one, hey, the wild kids, you're guilty. Here's why. Chapter two, the first part, good kids, you're guilty. Here's why. Chapter three, Jews, special race, chosen, favored, favored uh, nation status, you're guilty. Here's why. And next week, he'll bring the closing arguments to this court case, just like on Law and Order. Giving a closing, he's giving closing arguments and show how it doesn't really matter what, whether you're a good kid, a bad kid, or a special kid. We'll all stand before God guilty as charged, and the sentence is death. 
Okay? So that's where we're going in the flow of Romans. Now, the question is, uh, what's the principles for us today? And there's a couple that I want to focus on today, and they, they, they deal with the difference in our lives between religion and relationship. And, and I want to talk especially about what I'm calling the dangers of religion. Okay? So if you, you look at your note sheet there, there's a section that's called Guarding Your Relationship from the Dangers of Religion. It's got two principles I want to focus in on. So here's number one. The first thing, the first principle that jumps out of this passage is that religion is dangerous. I don't know how many of you grew up as you say, oh, I was a really religious person. Well, religion is dangerous. In fact, it can kill your relationship with God. Let's talk about this. Uh, the first thing that jumps out at me in this passage is that as fallen human beings, you and I have a tremendous capacity to always take our relationship with God and turn it into a religion, turn it into a set of uh, rituals, man-made rules, and just destroy the whole thing. It is, it's part of fallen humanity. Like In other words, when you take a fallen race and you say, would you try to have a relationship with God, what always happens in the history of the world, what always happens, we always turn it into ritual. And if you study the history of the relationship of the human race with God in all the different religions and through time and all, you see this. There's always this tendency to take our, turn our relationship into a ritual. Now, you see that, of course, in the Bible in the nation of Israel. You know, when God first comes to them Mount Sinai, he calls them to this incredible relationship. You remember some of the language. I'll be your God. You be my people. Israel is like my firstborn son. I want to be the father, see, father-son relationship. Later on, he'll describe that period uh, in the wilderness. He'll say, Israel was like a newborn, uh, not a newborn, like a, um, a young bride who would follow me anywhere, even through the wilderness. And I was like her lover who had loved her absolutely, like a, a, just a, a passionate love relationship. And so throughout the Old Testament, God would describe the relationship he wants with his people in relational terms. But what would happen is over and over again, they would take the relationship and they'd turn it into a ritual. And at the worst of these times, it would actually get so manipulative to where they would, they would be doing things like they would, be, they would totally reject their relationship with God and actually be worshiping other gods. And yet they would still come to the temple in Jerusalem and they would do the, all the religious stuff. They would offer the sacrifices. They would pray their prayers. They would uh, burn incense. They would fast. They would celebrate the religious holidays all the time. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, doing all the religious stuff. And yet, meanwhile, doing spiritual adultery, having a relationship with the other gods on the side. And, in fact, this week in your life group homework, you'll be looking at two passages from Isaiah that give examples of this type of hypocrisy. And the thing was, is they really thought that God was good with this. They, they really thought this is what God was into. As long as you jump through the religious hoops, God's good with that. And so over and over again, God would send the prophets and say, I'm not into the ritual, I'm into relationship. Now, what I'm saying is, this is not just an Israel issue, this is a human issue. And so like, as you look at our day, think of our own day, like, let me ask you a question. How many of you grew up as Catholics? Okay, great. Okay, now, I'm going to pick on Catholics for just a minute, and then I'm going to pick on evangelicals, just so you know. We're going to keep it all fair, all right? 
All right, so, so if you grew up as Catholic, you know how this works. I've talked to a billion Catholics, not a billion. Uh, popes talk, the popes talk to a billion Catholics, right? I've, I've talked to maybe a few thousand. <laughs> okay, 100, 10, whatever. All right, so <laughs> I met a Catholic once. All right, so, um, now I've talked a lot, a lot of Catholics. And, and the story often goes like this, you know, that you, you, you're born into a Catholic faith, you're, you're, you're baptized right away, so now you're in. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you grow up, maybe you go to Catholic school or some catechism or something like that. You, you learn, you go to mass, you learn to sit down, you know, when to sit, when to stand, you know, you know how's it go? You stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. You got that whole thing down. Uh, you, you know, you, you go mess up, you do whatever you want. You go to the priest, you get, oh yeah, you're forgiven, do the Hail Marys. And, and so, and, and you can just basically kind of live like hell and as long as you show up at Christmas and Easter and, and, and do the stuff, you know, and you, and you do your prayers and the little rosary. Okay, you're good, right? And, and a lot, and, and no, let me be clear, I'm not saying all Catholics look like li- life this way. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But that's a very common experience, right? Very common. And so, for example, you watch a movie like The Godfather, you know, a great spiritual classic of our time. <laughs> and, and you see, you'll see there this, you know, the head of the family, right? And, and they're, bringing their, they're taking their kids in to get them baptized, and it's all the whole Catholic church and stuff. And it's just kind of a picture of taking relationship and turning into ritual. Hey, we're good with God because we jump through the religious hoops, right? Okay, now let's talk about Protestant circles, even evangelical circles, how we'll do this. A, a person, they grew up in a Christian home, they go to church every week, they know a lot of Bible, just like the Jews in this story. They, they know a lot of Bible, right? You see, what Paul was saying is that in the history of the Jewish race, this is the way it's been here in Romans 2. That's what he says. It's this whole same mindset as long as I grew, up in a, I grew up in a Jewish home, I studied the Word of God, I knew what the Word says, I've got, I, I've got uh, circumcised, I'm in. It's a ritual mindset. And Paul says, no, you don't. You don't have a real relationship. You have ritual. And there's a big difference. Okay? okay, so how do we do that sometimes in Christian circles? A person grows up, they've gone to, to, to uh, a church their whole life, they know a lot about the Bible. When they are junior high, they went forward and accepted Christ at a, at a prayer meeting they were prayed for. They came home, they were baptized. They haven't walked with Jesus since. There's no change of, and no evidence of any of spirituality or, or, or following God in their life, and yet everyone looks at, oh, they're in. Be quiet, because they did the evangelical rituals. They walked the aisle, they raised the hand, they did the thing. Hey, they're in. It's no different. You see, it's a ritual mindset. It's a ritual mindset. And here's what I'm saying. As a human race, this is our tendency to always turn a relationship into ritual. Now, here's the point. For us as Christ followers today, we're here. We want to follow Jesus. We don't want to do that. Here's what I'm saying. is If you're a Christ follower today, you've probably seen this tendency in your own life. This constant tendency you have, and the longer you walk with Jesus, the harder it gets sometimes. We want to turn our relationship with Jesus into a ritual, into a religion. Like, like give me, let me give you just one example here. Well, let's take our prayer life. Um, when you first come to Jesus, especially if you're from a non-church background or something, um, and you come as an adult, um, I, I don't know, prayer can often be awkward at first. Uh, did, did any of you, like, when you first became a Christian, feel kind of awkward praying? Can I see some hands? Yeah, it's pretty common, especially in a group, right? 
It's just really awkward. I don't know how to pray. I don't know anything about prayer. And so someone comes along and they tell you, some Christian comes along and they tell you and they give you some great advice. They say, hey, prayer is just talking with God. It's just a relationship. Just be honest and just talk. And you go, okay, I think I can do that. And you start do, praying that and, you, and it really works. And you, you feel your relationship growing with God. And you become closer. It's a really cool thing. Okay, so now you, you've been walking with Jesus for a while and, and you got this basic prayer stuff down. And then someone comes along, it might be a, a Christian radio show, it might be a book, it might be a pastor, it could be uh, a friend in your life group or someone. And they say, that's just really great. You got this relationship with Jesus, you've come to him, you're praying now. But you know, if you're really serious about your walk with God, if you really want to know Jesus, if you really want to learn how to pray, you need to get up every morning and have a quiet time with Jesus. You need to spend time. And preferably 5.30 or before because that's really when God gets up. <laughs> and, um, and so, and it shows that you're serious. And so, uh, so if you could just, uh, and you do that, and like maybe like an hour a day, pray, and then and you're like, okay, if that's what it takes. I mean, I want to know God. I want to deepen my relationship. And so you start getting up. Only problem is you're not, a, you're not a morning person. You're an evening person. It doesn't matter when you get up. You don't wake up till 11 o'clock. So you're there in the morning, and you're just like can't even hardly breathe, and you're just crying out to God to help you. It's like all dark out and everything. You're like, whatever, I just want to see God in my life, you know, whatever it takes. And so you're doing that, and pretty soon someone comes along and says, hey, that's really cool, you know, that, that you're spending that regular time with God. That's just so awesome. But, you know, if you really want to be tight with God and you want your prayer life to take, have you ever heard of something called power prayers? Well, no, what's that? Well, like the Lord's Prayer. I mean, this is the Lord gave us this prayer. And he, he said, pray like this. And so and you really need to pray. So if you want to have an effective prayer life, the best way, always start with the Lord's Prayer. And then also, have you ever heard of this little book called The Prayer of Jabez? No, I haven't heard of that. Well, it sold a billion copies. It must be from the Lord. And so, <laughs> so once you get this prayer, now you need to every day make sure you pray the prayer of Jabez because that's how you get blessed. If you don't pray the prayer, you know, there's, you know all bets are off. And so, okay, so now you're up at 5.30 in the morning. You can't hardly see straight. You're starting off with the Lord's Prayer. Got the prayer of Jabez going. And you meet someone else. And so that's really good. You know, you're on the right track. But did you know there's a, there's a certain order that we need to pray in? You know, a certain order. Really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, it's very important, the order in which we talk to God. I mean, you just can't come. He's like the king of the universe. You know, we've got this... We've got this certain thing. And so, in fact, here's a real simple little acronym that'll help you. It's called ACTS. And so the A stands for adoration, and the C stands for confession, the T stands for thanksgiving, the S stands for supplication, which means asking. But it didn't really work good to call it ACTA, so we call it supplication. So, <laughs> all right, so, so so when you come into God's presence, you need to enter his, his gates with, uh, you know, with you know, praising him. So start with praising God and then go to confession because, you know, if you don't confess your sins, the Bible says God's not going to forgive you. And so all your, all your prayers after that are off. And so you need to do the confession. Then you go to thanksgiving because all things give thanks and otherwise we won't, we won't, we won't remember. And so do the thanks and then and do the supplication. So at the end you can ask for what you really want. All right. Okay, great. So now you're up at 5.30 in the morning. You can't see straight. You're doing your power prayers. You got the Acts A. What is that? CT. Well, okay. And, and so and that's going pretty well. Someone comes along and says, you know, that's just awesome, but do you keep a prayer journal? <laughs> no, what's prayer journal? 
Well, you've got to write down your requests. I mean, otherwise, how will you remember them? I mean, after all, Jesus said to pray with perseverance. You think you're going to remember everything without a prayer? You need to write down your requests, and you need to go through your list every day. That's the way to make this thing work. Okay, I got a prayer journal now. <laughs> so I'm going through my list, you know, every day. It's a little boring, but just going one, two, three. That's how you do it. That's what they said. And someone else comes along and says, that is awesome. You got that prayer list going. But now, are you praying for missionaries on that journal? <laughs> missionaries? No, well, you know, it's a great commission. We're to go into all the world and pray for, for you know. So we need to be praying for our mission. Are you praying for them? No. Well, how would you suggest I do that? Well, the way I do is I got three a day. I pray for three different ones every day. Monday, these three. Okay. Okay, so I, now I got that going. Next person comes along and says, you know, I noticed in life group last week that when you prayed, you didn't end by saying, in Jesus' name. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus said we were supposed to pray in Jesus' name. So if you don't pray in Jesus' name, it, it's null and void. This thing's not really working. You're like, are you kidding me? I've been getting up at 5.30 for months now. I've lost my job. I can't concentrate at work. I'm praying the prayer of Jabez, but no blessing's been coming. I'm bored out of my mind going through the list. And you're telling me none of it counted? I've got to start all over again because it's not in Jesus. I'm sorry. That's the way it works. You see? And all of a sudden, you wake up one day, and you're spending a lot of time in prayer, but you're having no relationship with God. It's like you're just jumping through all these religious hoops, and you're hating life. And now you're skipping prayer all the time because you hate it so much. And now you're feeling really guilty because you've got the seven steps, and you're just really, you know, botching the whole thing. And we do this, don't we? There's a tendency in the human heart that always takes relationship and wants to turn it into ritual. And it's just just the way we are. It's something we have to guard ourselves against. And it's not just prayer. It's how we read the word. It's how we serve. It's how we give. It's how we raise our kids. It's how, uh, uh, how we share Christ. You know, it's just you go down the line that we begin to develop all these man-made rules and we attach them to our relationship until the religion kills the relationship. Now, here's the, one of the things I love about Jesus is he's so cotton-picking relational. Jesus, he's always taking us back to the simplicity of relationship. And so, so, for example, remember last year we did that long series in the Sermon on the Mount called The Message of the Movement. We came to chapter 6, the lesson on, on prayer. And Jesus says, here's the basic lesson on prayer. Keep it simple. Remember that? Remember what Jesus said? Hey, when you come to pray, just remember, it's all about you and your father, not about anyone else. It's a relationship. Hey, by the way, your father, he, he knows everything about you. He knows every hair on your head. He loves you more than you can imagine. In fact, he knows everything you're going to say before you say it. So when it comes to prayer, prayer, don't feel like you have to come up with big words. Don't feel like you have to go on with meaningless repetition. Just share your heart. Here's a simple way. Let me give you a little example, simple example. You see? You see the simplicity of that? Jesus always pulls us back to simplicity of relationship. Here's, I'll tell you, in my life, here's one thing I've, 
I've learned uh, that's been very helpful to me over my life is that when anyone comes to me or I come up with a new idea of how to get closer with God or, or how to grow in my spiritual life, I've learned to always run it through what I call the relational grid and say, okay, is this sounds like something that sounds like a relationship issue? Is this, what I, this person just told me, this is the way you need to do it. Does that sound like a relationship thing or does that sound like a ritual thing? And what I've learned if it sounds like relationships, it's usually a good thing. If it sounds like ritual, it's usually not. Now, I just, before we leave this first point, I want to say one thing very clearly and put neon lights around this, okay? So if you haven't been paying attention, this is a good time. Okay? I am not saying that God will not often use many of the very, specific, very exact same things I just made fun of to help you grow. I'm not saying that. That God may come to you and say, you need to get up at 5.30 every morning for an hour. We need to be spending time together. That is the key. God may come to you and say, you need to give up TV in your life. God may come to you and say, you need to just at least share Christ with three people each week. These, God may say, you need to start giving more of your income, and here's how much. I'm not saying that these are not, often God will use specific steps of spiritual discipline to help us grow. But here's the key. They're coming from God, not from man-made rules, not from the person next to you in your life group, not from some book you read. And there's a huge difference when God leads you in an area than when we lead ourselves. When God leads you, it will always lead to a deeper relationship, you see, so the very same things that in one setting could lead to relationship and another setting can lead to ritual and, and the deadness of religion. Okay, number two. Okay, the second principle goes like this. God is calling us. Okay, so he's calling us into relationship, right? But he's calling us into a supernatural relationship. This is really key, isn't it? He's calling us into relationship, not religion. We're clear on that. Okay, but, but I want to, the next step is he's not just calling us into relationship. He's calling us into a supernatural relationship. And it's a relationship that is supernatural from beginning to end. Yeah. Like, take your Bibles. Let's look at Romans 2 again. I want you to see this. This is what Paul is after. See, these Jews, they thought they had a relationship with God because they're circumcised, they've gone to church, they read the word, um, they, they had Abraham as their father, all this stuff. And he says, no, it's more than that. In verse 29, he says, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. And catch this, by the whom? By the Spirit. What Paul says is if you want to have a relationship with God, something has to happen to you. You can't do it on your own. You can't just decide, I'm going to have a relationship with God. For that to happen, God has to do something in you first. He's got to touch you at a heart level. Paul says he has to circumcise your heart. This is a supernatural work of God's spirit. and It happens when we first come to Christ, but it's an ongoing process that our relationship is supernatural from beginning to end. Now, this is one of the most important ideas of the Apostle Paul. It runs through all his letters and a most important part of understanding his teaching. In fact, this week in your life group, the second half of your life group is going to focus on this supernatural aspect from beginning to end. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day when Jesus comes back. It's a supernatural work, right? So, 
Paul will use a variety of metaphors to describe this supernatural work. For example, here he uses a metaphor of circumcision, circumcision of the heart. But in 2 Corinthians 3, he uses a couple others. Now, we won't turn there, but there, there, the notes are on you. There's some verses on your note sheet. Let me just kind of comment on them real fast. One example, he says, another metaphor. He says, when, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, he had the law of God, and he had it on tablets of stone. But he says, but that could never change the human race because it was external. He says, now in Christ, God is writing his law on your hearts through his spirit. And so here's another New Testament metaphor of Paul, that that God has to, he circumcises your heart, that's a metaphor. Here's another one, God writes his law, his desires on your heart. He changes you from the inside out. He takes his heart and he writes it on your heart. He he writes on the tablets of your heart. There's a metaphor. The end of chapter three of 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's talking about that same event where where, um, where Paul comes, I mean, where uh, Moses comes down from the mountain with the stab- tablets of stone. And if you remember that story, his face was brilliant. He absorbed the energy from God. His face was, he looked like glowing, like a you know, thermonuclear or something. And so, and so when he would talk to the people, Moses, when he would talk to the people, he would leave the veil off so they could see the glow. But then when it, in between time, he would cover, the, cover his face up. Now, why did he do that? He did that because he didn't want them to realize that the glow was fading. Uh, probably because he felt like he had more authority with the glow, you know. <laughs> hey, they're going to listen to me. So he would talk to him. The face would be glowing. Then he'd, he'd cover it back up. He'd go in and talk with God, take it off, get recharged, <laughs> come back out. Here I am, glow, <laughs> cover it back up. And, and so Paul says that's a picture of the Old Testament law, is that the people got a glimpse of God's glory, but it was temporary. There was a veil covered. They couldn't really enter into it. They couldn't really be changed. He says, now that we've come to Jesus, it's like the veil's been taken away, and through the Holy Spirit, we get to see more and more of who Jesus is all the time. We see his glory, and he says that as we see it, we're being transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit, where his glory is passing to us. We're being changed. And so here's the point. Throughout the New Testament, throughout Paul's writings, he will use a wide variety of metaphors to describe the same spiritual truth, that the relationship that God calls us to is a supernatural relationship. Now, we started the day (coughs) with a story of Danny Croce. We left Danny. He was lying on his bed, looking up at the night. He's listening to the mutters of the prisoners down the hall, wondering, how did he ever get here? You know, if only I had left five minutes earlier or later that night from the bar. If only it hadn't been raining and we hadn't taken off work uh, uh, early. If only Sully hadn't been more plastered than I was and he could have driven. He's just, he's just it's going over and over in his mind. And that first few weeks of prison was so tough. It was, it was not only lonely, it was not only disheartening, but it was dangerous. He's out there one of his first days. He's assigned to this work detail out in this field. He's out in the field, and all of a sudden, several other convicts begin approaching him. And one of the biggest guys steps forward. He says, I heard you were a boxer. I heard you fought the number 14th uh, list, uh, titled guy, you know, kind of rated guy in the world. Let's see if you're so tough. And so here's this big guy who wants to take him on to make a name for himself in the prison. You know, fortunately, Danny was a boxer, and so then this guy's bigger and, and, and so on. He just laid him out. So people gave him a little bit of space. 
But it was continuing to be, it's a dangerous place. It's a lonely place. His life was over as he knew it. And through an amazing series of events we don't have time to go into, someone shared Jesus with Danny in that prison. He didn't have a religious background at all, but he became a Christ follower. And what happened is the moment that happened, the Holy Spirit circumcised his heart. The Holy Spirit began writing his law in his heart, began changing him from the inside out. He didn't have any religious background. That wasn't his thing. But he found the Holy Spirit began to change him just automatically. This is what happens when a person comes to Christ. And so, so what happens? So, so Daddy's one day in the prison. He's playing ping pong. He goes to light up a cigarette. He was, you know, he was a smoker. He was a doper. He, in prison, he just had all kinds of things going on. And so he goes to light it up. And he says, as he, as he put the cigarette in his mouth, he hears a single word. And the single word inside of him is just stop. He didn't know why. He didn't know what that's about. Didn't know why he should stop. But he knows he's heard from God. And so he, he begins he pulls it out of his mouth, puts it back in the pack, puts it in his pocket, and he, and he begins to lay off the cigarettes. It was not easy. He'd been smoking was almost his whole, you know, adolescent and adult life. And so he said that the, for weeks it was just battle. So the first day he said he had to pray and ask God for power like 20 times. Next day like 19 times. But eventually he overcame it. And after that the voice spoke again. And there was another issue. And once he dealt with that there was another issue. And there was a lot of issues. If it was the dope, it was the drinking, it was uh, the, the, the swearing, it was the way he related to other prisoners, and a lot of issues. But he said the voice was always patient, and the voice always only asked him to do one thing at a time, one issue at a time. And as he listened to the spirit inside of him, his life began to change. And one day he, he, he realized, as he looked out from his bars over the horizon, he could see the sunlight he realized that he was more free now than he'd ever been in his life, even though he was still in prison. And so the time comes for Danny to be released. His sentence is up. He continues to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And, and so he goes in, he starts working with inner city kids in, in Boston. He gets married. He has kids of his own. He starts to build his own family. Then he gets this big break. He gets a scholarship and acceptance into the special program for former inmates at Wheaton College, a Christian school in the Midwest. He goes to Wheaton. He graduates. He's ordained. Now he's standing back at the old prison, the Plymouth uh, County Correctional Center, where he'd spent all those years. And he's back there, and he stands inside the gate for the first time, first time back, and the lock goes behind him. So you're between the, in the lock area. And the speaker comes on and says, who are you? He said in the moment they heard that, he just panicked. And all the memories of his time in the prison just flooding back on him. Who am I? Am I that person that, that killed Johnny Gilbert? Am I that person? Well, yes, I am that person, but I'm a new person. Something's happened. Something's changed my life. And so the second time the voice comes on, tell us, who are you? And he said, my name is Danny Croce. I'm the new prison chaplain. Isn't that awesome? This is the way God changes lives. But how does he do it? He does it not through ritual. He does it through relationship as we learn to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life one step at a time. There's a great verse there in your note sheet, the third one down, where the Apostle Paul summarizes like this. He says, since we live by the Spirit, in other words, since as followers of Jesus, we've come alive spiritually, supernaturally, by the Holy Spirit. So since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Isn't that a beautiful uh, picture? 
Some of you used to be in marching band or the military or something. You know what it means to keep in step, right? He says, so he says, hey, if, you, if you've started this supernatural relationship with God through his spirit, keep in step with the spirit. Be listening. What's the spirit leading you? What is he impressing up on you? What's he saying yes to? What's he saying no to? What's he putting in your heart? And do what Danny Croce did. Just listen and follow. And as you do, as he writes his law in our hearts, as we grow and change, they're transformed, we become more and more like Jesus. You know, years ago, I read a book by Bill Hybels. You know, Bill's a senior pastor at Willow Creek Church back outside Chicago, which is a very famous church, large church, very influential church, and it's written a lot of really helpful books. But he wrote a, a book called uh, Too Busy Not to Pray. It's a really helpful book on prayer. And and there's just one quote in there. To me, it's worth the price of admission. You know, it's worth the price of the whole book. And I want you to follow it. I put it there. It's kind of long, but it's really worth it. He said, authentic Christianity, <coughs> it's not learning a set of doctrines and then stepping into cadence with people all marching the same way. It's not simply humanitarian service to the less fortunate. It's a walk. It's a supernatural walk with a living, dynamic communicating God. Now catch this. Thus the heart and soul of the Christian life is learning to hear God's voice and developing the courage to do what he tells us to do. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that picture what Danny Croce did? He says, authentic uh, Christians are persons who stand apart from others, even other Christians, as though listening to a different drummer. Their character seems deeper, their ideas fresher, their spirit softer, their courage greater, their leadership stronger, their concerns wider, their compassion more genuine, their convictions more concrete. Authentic Christians are full of surprises. You think you have them neatly boxed, but they turn out to be unpredictable. And when you're around them, you feel slightly off balance because you don't know what to expect next. But over time, you realize that, that their unexpected ideas and actions can be trusted. And that's because authentic Christians have a strong relationship Here's the word, with the Lord. Here's the question. Is that the kind of Christian you are growing into right now in your life? Here's the offer. That is the kind of relationship that God is calling you to. This is the kind of relationship Jesus died so you can have. The question is, are you learning to listen to the Spirit and follow like Danny did? And it's not just a question for you as individuals. This is a question for us as a church. What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to be a church that just falls into step with everyone else and just does things the same way? Are we going to be a church that learns to listen to the Holy Spirit, you see, and experience that kind of vibrant creativity that he brings to the table? Let's pray together. God, we want that kind of relationship. We don't want to settle. We don't want to have a mediocre relationship. We certainly don't want ritual and, and religion. God, we want that real relationship. And so today, as we come before you and as we seek you now in this final worship song where we, we make it the cry of our heart to your heart, that you would speak to us and that we'd hear your voice more clearly and more dearly and we experience your presence more nearly than any other in our life. God, we pray that you would hear our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.